I hope that you are doing good, and I am not sure if this would be helpful for you or someone you know. There is no doubt our world is facing unprecedented challenges right now, but I thought it was important to check in. We have common contacts, as well as the same interests. I'm always looking to add you to my network. Are you open to connecting? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Touchpoint, episode number 168. It feels like 200 is just around the corner, but I know that's like 32 weeks from now, if my math is right. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a long right. way. We may still be under quarantine. I, I have no idea uh, at that point. Uh, it's highly probable, I guess. Of course, I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer, and we're so thankful you're back listening to us another time around. And I'm, I'm excited to also say that I think spring is here now in Minnesota. No more snow. And people have heard me say this, obviously, uh, our office here in Nashville, and that's where the majority of uh, the Girard office is, but we also have a Chicago office, and I think it snowed twice this week there. So that's unfortunate. It's like 72 outside. Looking forward to uh, mowing my grass. And you know, another sign of spring is all the LinkedIn solicitations start coming in again, <laughs> which uh, is a reference to the top of the show, right? Even the LinkedIn spam people have morphed to a COVID-related message. Well, that's why we put together that little beat jazz snippet for you there at the beginning. Those are actual solicitations we just received this week. That's right. Well, again, thank you so much for the support. Uh, a couple of quick plugs, the TPS report, the weekly email that comes out, uh, go over to the site, touch health and uh, sign up to get that. It's some aggregated news from around the industry, some really great links and whatnot that we send out uh, first thing on Monday morning, and then we don't bug you again the rest of the week. And then also check out uh, all the new shows. Again, How I Got Here, super interesting series, talking to some of the folks that you all would recognize, Lee A.C., Brian Gresh, Dana Lewis, Ed Bennett, who was on the show last week, and a few others. Learn how they got to where they are. Go check that show out. And rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to listen. That's the number one way that you can help us out. We're going to take a brief pause right here, and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So Reed, today we're going to talk about information and information that people are seeking out related to health. And I know we've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks about, you know, how consumers patterns are shifting. And even last week, we talked about how search patterns when people are searching for are changing. Right. The underlying theme here is that medical information or health information is really important for us as hospitals and health systems to convey accurately. And we've always been sort of the arbiter of the right kind of health information, even before the pandemic occurred. But even now, it becomes a little bit more important for us to be part of that conversation. It is. And and what does that actually look like? You pulled uh, some great information 
information here from a recent NRC Health consumer sentiment data on the coronavirus pandemic. So this is from April 2020 study that they did with some great stats that, that'll kind of help level set us on, on where we are right now. This is, by the way, an update because they did a study in March and then they did another study in April just to see how sentiment has changed or, or you know, how people have been perceiving healthcare information and the role that us as hospitals and health systems have in kind of being the, the authority of that information. 31% of consumers' confidence in healthcare systems has waned just over the last month. In the March survey, 42% believe that the healthcare system was equipped to handle COVID-19. And now that dropped a month later to 31%. Here's what's interesting. If of the people they talked to, 20%, which is a relatively low number, say that they know someone who's had COVID-19. The vast majority of people that you talk to have not had it, nor do they know someone who's had it. In a little less than that, only 17% think that they're likely or extremely likely to get it. So we don't have it. And we don't think we're going to get it. But yet, almost all of them, almost 80% consider themselves very well or extremely well informed about it. I think that speaks to our mindset in Western culture just anyway. I mean, I know this is the case from looking at Facebook because all of my friends that were economists a few weeks ago are now uh, physicians, apparently. It's just kind of our nature, right? Is what we feel confident about those types of things aren't going to happen to me. And so I think that's an interesting thought process as we look at what other people say and how we feel like in this trust, for example, do we feel like someone else knows better than us? Another stat that came out of the study, though, which is interesting, is that of the same people, those 77% of them who consider themselves well-informed, 72% of the, that same audience trust local hospitals to handle the crisis more than they trust like other entities, like the governments. So while they consider themselves really like well-knowledge on what the crisis is, they also have a high degree of trust in local hospitals and local health systems to help respond to the crisis. Is there a way for us to correlate the fact that do consumers actually turn to hospitals and health systems to get that authoritative information or do they just rely on their friends on Facebook? And I wonder how much of that's by proxy. We're talking about the trust of the local hospital, which I think is great. And depending on who we're talking to, if you're in uh, a smaller community, there's a good chance you know people that work at the hospital. So are you getting the information on Facebook via people who work at the hospital? And this is where kind of that advocacy play comes in and why activating your physicians and your staff and those types of things are so important, not just in this day and time, but just in general. So we don't get into some of the anti-vax type you know, scenarios that we're commonly seeing, I guess. The reason why, Reed, we're talking about all of this right now is because really what is a critical part of understanding where we're getting information from and how do we trust the information that we're getting, we should probably turn to the second article that we want to talk through today, which actually comes from statnews.com, which is a very clinical website that I've recently Oof. started to read. Dance. <laughs> It's an opinion piece that says misinformation about an outbreak like COVID-19 is public health data. One of the first things they said is that the spread of information and misinformation has been playing a crucial role throughout the unfolding of not only the coronavirus outbreak, but through various outbreaks that we've seen very recently, like the SARS outbreak a couple of years ago, any kind of crisis situation that occurs, even if it's not a health crisis or not, social media and, and digital channels are really becoming now channels in which people turn to, to get information. And the article kind of puts forward that it that because of this spread of information and misinformation, we should consider these outlets as part of the way we're tracking epidemics. Again, you know, how do you get your news and how do you get information? You know, I've had a fair amount of conversations with people I know that I've said a number of times, I would just go with what the CDC says, you know, versus whatever they just said they saw or heard or read or 
or whatever. Another interesting point in here, uh, which is kind of fascinating, and again, it makes sense, but it says with every outbreak of a new pathogen, comes the race to estimate its uh, transmittability, which, you know, science, the media, the public use to compare the threat to known enemies. So in other words, when something new comes out that we don't have any historical knowledge of, we try to quickly compare it to something else. So we're seeing a lot of comparisons to the flu or the XYZ of whatever year, the pandemic of 19 whatever, you know. And so because you're, you're trying to say, well, it's not as bad as this. It's not, it's worse than that. It's, you know, because you're trying to figure out how serious do I take this? Like, do I go to Walgreens or do I not go to Walgreens? You know, do I go drive through Chick-fil-A or not? How serious is this? And when that happens, sometimes when information changes, like at the beginning, they were saying, don't, con- you know, don't congregate in groups of 10 or more. And then they moved that down to two or more, the CDC, they kind of moved that over the, a couple of weeks because things were changing. Suddenly we're like, well, wait, what do we believe? That information is moving so fast. And we are living in a society where everybody is craving to get information out and consume that information in order to kind of make sense, which causes this complexity of information. The article goes on to say that when social contagions like viral news interact with biological contagions like viruses, modeling of those contagions are borrowed from social sciences as well as from actual sciences. You need to start looking at this as sort of like a combined data set for us to kind of help to contain what's going on in the world. That's an interesting thought, though, you know, them talking about things like, you know, we need to start treating misinformation related to an outbreak is public health data in and of itself. Because of the way we communicate and the technology that's involved, it's more than just communication. Is that what we're saying? Absolutely, because it could cause things to occur within the COVID outbreak recently. How very on at the onset, we heard that you shouldn't take Advil, you should take Tylenol. Did you hear about that at one point, Reed? Yeah, now that you say that, that does sound familiar. So that was based on a very small study that was being done in Europe. And the World Health Organization published that study. It was an incomplete study. And by the way, was inconclusive. But what happened is the virality of that through social media made it such that doctors in health systems across the United States stopped administering Advil and started to do Tylenol. And by the way, us as consumers, we suddenly went out and we went and bought all the Tylenol off the shelves. So there was a shortage of (laughs) Tylenol. And you can think about that, you know, with other claimed drugs that various people at various levels of the government have been saying, you know, help to treat this this condition, that potentially can put people at, you know, at risk if you're not following medical science. So what the whole point here is, is that what you say in the media outlets, what you say in spreading of information could potentially cause a health backlash to managing the pandemic. It's crazy. It really is. And guess what this article or this opinion piece really centers on social media platforms. They say that social media platforms could contribute a disease modeling by publicly sharing data related to the spread of myths and lies around public health emergencies. Now, actual scientists are using these data as part of an emergency response itself. And it becomes very, very important for them to not only respond to it scientifically, medically, but now also to respond to it through digital channels like social media. It changes what is uh, necessary or required. So it's not like, well, I mean, if you like to, you know, if you like social media or whatever, if that's your thing, yeah, participate there, right? If you're a subject matter expert, it's like you almost have a responsibility to be there now. And we've been talking about this for a while, right? That we as health systems have a responsibility to be there, you know, and the anti-vaxxers and other things. But even, you know, as critical as it is in the midst of, you know, a pandemic and, and all this kind of uncertainty about what the future is, it becomes very, very important. So why don't we, after the break, talk a little bit about how this spread of misinformation on 
social channels is actually causing a kind of a, a, a pressure on the technology companies themselves that are representing that platform. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's now turn our attention a little bit to what this means relative to technology. And I think this first article that we're going to jump into from TechCrunch, which has been a while. It's been a while since we've had a TechCrunch article, but it's a great site, obviously, very technology related, as you would imagine. Uh, but this article is titled, The Pandemic is Already Reshaping Tech's Misinformation Crisis. It starts off by saying in 2016, as we all know, there was a lot of bad press around social media about sharing information that was probably not correct in the context of the spread of misinformation during an election. You know, we won't rehash all of that today, but really at that point in time, there was a, a general understanding that these technology companies had a responsibility to kind of manage and traffic information that's correct and kind of try to suppress, if not remove, misinformation. And guess what, Reed, in the light of what's currently happened, here we go again. It actually brings to light this issue. I guarantee you this is an issue that that no one that started any of these platforms, Zuckerberg or otherwise, uh, really considered as they you know, started down this path. Like, who would have thought? Because everybody took that initial stance, whether it was 2016 or before or after or whatever, of, look, we're just a, we're just a platform. Like, we can't police. Like, where does people's rights come in and out? And we can't police everything. And, you know, what, you know, how do you define hate speech versus this? You know, you get into the nuances of all of this stuff. And, you know, no one wants to really own that or take that responsibility. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in, there are bad actors out there that are going to do this. And they highlighted a couple of, of platforms and some of the challenges. On YouTube, there were a batch of videos that were promoting fake coronavirus cures. These were video ads. They promoted unscientific methods, including home remedies, meditative music, and potentially unsafe levels of over-the-counter supplements like vitamin C as potential treatments for the virus. These ads actually ran right next to ads of a very respectable advertisers like Liberty Mutual, Quibi, even political advertising. And so when you as a user are watching these, it's kind of mixed within these credible authoritative sources. And guess what? You're getting fake information. And YouTube had a huge backlash about it. There's a kind of a similar scenario on Facebook. A banner ad for a company ran on a video suggesting uh, music that provides cognitive pos uh, positivity by using subtle yet powerful theta waves could ward off the virus. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I don't, I don't even know. Point being, much like YouTube, you know, it's like, you know, people are going to try to maximize an opportunity, whether you should or shouldn't ethically do that. People are still, you know, there's certain people that are still going to jump out there and do it, right? And so these are a couple of examples of that. Well, the other challenge of this is, and what it really highlights is the fact of how these technology companies are actually trying to filter misinformation from real information. In many cases, what it is, it's a mix between human intervention and technology. It's it's not one or the other. It's kind of a mix mishmash of the two. And when we entered into the early stages of this pandemic, many of these platforms, all of their workers kind of went home and that set up sort of the perfect storm. It forced these technology companies to rely more on technology to fill in the work for those human reviewers. YouTube warned it early on that they were going to do that and that the automated process will likely mean more video removals, including some videos that may not violate policies. 
Twitter did the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. They said they're going to use technology like this. And I know that you and I talked about on a previous episode, Facebook and Google also trying to put some limitations around their advertising to kind of try to restrict that, which caused a wide swing in the other direction and actually hindered hospitals when they were trying to actually put out real relevant authoritative content. Everybody has seen the videos, the infographics or whatever of like how much new content is created a day, you know, on whatever platform or per minute or, you know, there's X amount of videos uploaded to YouTube every second or, you know, whatever these like eye popping stats are, you know, that you see. How do you do that? I mean, it's some mix of certainly AI and some algorithms that, you know, are able to pull back certain content, at least for human review and, and interaction there. But that's where this is really problematic, is that it's really hard to police. The whack-a-mole scenario. And unfortunately, the AI systems are not there. The machine learning is not there. And by the way, if these bad actors are humans and you know people that are trying to get around the systems, they're going to always find a way around these systems. It really puts us into this crisis of, of viral misinformation. As the article puts forward, deliberately sown disinformation. And it's intermixing with the way information is spreading about this pandemic. Unfortunately, that's having consequences, psychological consequences on people that are grasping to try to get a sense of what's real, what's truthful or not. It's having consequences where some people might actually be buying. There are coronavirus toothpaste commercials out there, like you can have a toothpaste to get rid of coronavirus. I think I found an idea for the toothpaste thing. So I think it could potentially work. So you have toothpaste, it does prevent coronavirus. What it does is, is it makes your breath so bad that everyone stays at least six feet away from you. Therefore, it you know it it almost ensures social distancing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's a good idea, actually. Also, not bathing would work too, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we make jest of it, but there are people that are actually out there getting wrong information. We found an article. Read what Facebook is doing because there's been such a spread of fake news on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, an article over on Politico. Um, it, it's called Facebook to tell millions of users that they've seen fake news, quote unquote, about coronavirus. This is interesting. I, I'm curious to see, and I'm curious to hear from someone who has had this experience, but campaign group, and I don't know how you say their name, Avaz discovered that over 40% of coronavirus-related misinformation it found on Facebook, which had already been debunked by fact-checking organizations, uh, working with the technique, remained on the platform despite the company being told that they were false, right? So it's like, you know, we've, we've identified a whole bunch of information that's, that's not correct, and it's still here. So as part of this push uh, to quell the spread of, of uh, coronavirus misinformation, Facebook will show people who have engaged with false content, which has now been deleted, a message that debunks the claims based on fact-checking efforts by the World Health Organization. So that includes claims that 5G mobile networks can spread the disease. I, that, that's one. I started. I went down this whole path. I, it was like one of the last, maybe it was last night or the night before, around all these people that are posting this and claiming this. I, well, anyway, we don't have this kind of time, but um, <laughs> good gracious alive. Like, are you kidding me with this? You know, and it's like, it, it, you know, 5G came from China. Everybody got sick. And it's like, oh, okay. I don't, what, what is happening? <laughs> so the point is, is I'd love to hear from somebody who has seen a message um, on Facebook. That basically says, you saw wrong information. Here's the right message. Yeah, I would like to see that too. Definitely screenshot that and share it our way because we want to see what that looks like. But that kind of leads us to the last article. And the last article we'll, we'll kind of cover very quickly before we turn to an interview. This last article is from thriveglobal.com, which I probably should have checked to see if this was an authoritative source. It's entitled, Amid Coronavirus Pandemic, Misinformation Puts Public Health at a Risk. And here are five things you can do to counter misinformation and protect one another. So number one is educate yourself about the virus. Again, according to NRC, we're already, we're already there. <laughs> 
But continue to educate yourself about the virus, like the fact that 5G doesn't cause. So the more you know about it, the easier, obviously. I mean, this is with anything. If you know at least some baseline information, it lets you suss out some of the stuff that you're seeing online, regardless of the topic, coronavirus or not, is being correct or not. The second thing you should do is pause and verify before you share before you quickly repost it. No, I just read the headline and immediately reshare it. If if it if it fits my point of view. Otherwise, I just Exactly. <laughs> well, try to look up where that information came from. If you could double check it, spend some time validating. I these are good lessons in life anyway on Facebook, <laughs> but still, uh yeah, pause and verify is the second step. <laughs> I need to tell my kids that because they don't verify things that they hear. But anyway, maintain a healthy dose of skepticism. Again, this is kind of the the verification piece and the education piece. And it's also kind of goes back to that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? Like it's, it's that kind of mentality of like, you know, you don't always be negative or glass half empty. But especially in this point in time where... You know, you guys start asking yourself a question. If it sounds like a conspiracy theory, it probably is. Absolutely. Step four is one that I'm not really sure it's a step, but it basically says, get used to a level of uncertainty. It's important to accept that we don't have all the answers about this pandemic, and we may not know that information. Be okay with it being vague sometimes and not having answers. I know there's a lot of people on my Facebook feeds that probably don't like that answer. They want to know where it's at. They want to know the answers, but um, you know, but take some time and, and, and understand you're not going to know all the information. Uh, and number five, uh, which I just admitted to failing miserably, uh, don't go down the information rabbit hole. No, I just got stuck on this deal with the anti-vaxxers and the 5G thing and, and whatnot. But again, there's going to be, uh, you're going to be inundated. You already have been inundated with, with information on the coronavirus and COVID-19 and, and all this stuff. You can just spend all day, every day. And I would just ask, you know, is that a good use of time? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, like, what does that do for you exactly? Now, again, don't forget step one, you know, be knowledgeable, like know what's happening. But like, you know, you don't, we don't need to spend all day, you know, going down these, uh, these different paths and, and assessing out all this stuff. I think we would both argue that if you're a hospital or health system that is responsible for sharing information that's credible, assumptively from NRC, the audiences out there, they turn to you as a credible source of that information. So it's very important now to get your local medical professionals to be part of the conversation. And I know that a lot of us have been doing that through this pandemic, getting them, you know, in, uh, available, accessible to talk to the media. I mean, of course, those that are not on the front line. One of the, the things that we're going to turn to is an interview I did recently with John Brownlee. He is the owner of VidScript, a company that helps physicians themselves actually create Credible medical information to share with their patients, and um, and he works with hospitals and health systems as well, providing an easy way for them to get involved and share that information. Let's turn to the interview now and listen in on some of his thoughts around how you can get doctors more easily involved in sharing information. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I am talking with John Brownlee from VidScript. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. I actually had an interview with you almost a month and a half ago. We we sat down and we had a and face-to-face, we had a conversation. And given all the recent changes that have occurred, we both agreed that maybe it was time for us to maybe get back and actually do this interview all over again, um, in particular, because it's something we're going to talk about in just a second. So welcome back, I should say. Thank you very much. Yeah, you better publish this one quick. You know, the things could be out of date in about an hour. I know a lot about you. I've known you for uh, a number of years now. People listening in may not know about you. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your background and your company? So my background is pretty much all in healthcare. I spent a number of years in the medical device and biotech space. Uh, transitioned and worked in the healthcare services sector. Worked for Governor Tommy Thompson at a company called Logistics Health. And then went out and started a company 
that was focused on helping large employers and critical infrastructure companies prepare for global pandemics, believe it or not, and uh, have, have uh, some scars from uh, the 2009 uh, H1N1 pandemic, and then started uh, VidScript in uh, 2012. And we've been doing VidScript for amazingly a little over eight years now. And what VidScript is, is a platform that helps uh, healthcare providers, uh, a lot of surgeons, in the old days anyway, it's typically been a lot of surgeons, procedure-based uh, physicians who um, repeat themselves all the time with patients, getting them ready for surgery, helping them prepare or recover from surgeries. They say the same things over and over again, um, yet we know that patients forget up to 86% of what they of what they learned at the point of care. And what VidScript does is essentially on their own computer, interviews them, asks them all these questions and records them answering those, and then takes all these little videos and stitches them together into video prescriptions, which then can be delivered to patients at just the right time in a care episode, like maybe the night before surgery or the day after surgery or or 30 days uh, post-op, et cetera. The goal is to improve the efficiency of the practice, reduce cancellations for procedures, reduce callbacks into the clinic, improve patient satisfaction, uh, and ultimately improve outcomes. And we've done a number of studies that showed some great, some great results. And now, obviously, we're really heavily focused on helping providers communicate around around COVID-19, and that's taken us in some new directions. We could certainly want to talk about that because, you know, prior to this global pandemic that's kind of impacted the, the health systems so significantly uh, over the last couple of weeks, and, and it will continue on for the indeterminate future here, I knew from my experience working with providers, it was sometimes difficult to get them involved with uh, creating content to help their patients throughout various different segments of the, the care journey. We haven't really experienced that reluctance maybe in the same way as as you might if you're doing something like that from inside a health system. And what I mean by that is if you ask a very busy, let's just say, uh, surgical urologist, which we work with hundreds and hundreds of those, um, you know, if you ask them those simple questions, do you repeat yourself all the time? Yes, I say the same things. It's Groundhog Day for me every day. And do patients remember what you say? Um, they, they're, they're skeptical. The patients are able to um, retain a lot of that information and then communicate it to their caregivers. They'll almost all agree with that. Um, and then if you ask them what the implications of that are in their practice, in elective procedures in urology, for instance, to use that example, very high cancellation rates. Either patients who decide they don't, they're not sure if they want to go through with this, um, up to even patients just not being prepared for surgery, they've taken their aspirin, they weren't supposed to, things like that. And so it's not difficult really to um, have that conversation with a, with a clinician and have them say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be able to solve that. The question really then becomes, how efficiently can you do that? And, you know, can you do it at scale? And so, you know, our platform really uh, takes the idea of, of, of uh, being able to create content to do it really easily and do it at scale and do it in a highly structured way. It's not just, hey, talk about this thing on video for a while. It's sit in front of your own computer and get asked 30 questions that you know the answers to without even thinking about them. Um, so the way we've structured the process and the platform um, and made it easy for providers to be able to do that uh, using their own the tools that they already have without a crew of of, you know, of uh, video people coming into a room and setting up lights. We've just made it really, really simple to solve that very, very real problem. And I think that's kind of the key. Um, there's maybe a couple of failure points for VidScript. One is, or for something like what we do, one is, do they think it's a problem? That almost never happens. They almost always say, yeah, this is, I face this every day. Um, <clears throat> the next question is, um, do you want to solve it by recording these videos? And usually they'll do that. And uh, we don't have much problem getting them to schedule time to do that. Where the failure point is that we really spend the majority of our time is that last mile, which is, okay, you've got all this content. Now, what do you do with it? How do you get it in front of a patient at the right time? So integrating that into the workflow of a practice that's where the rubber meets the road. I want to focus in a little bit on the part that you said was a bit of a challenge. How do you get that in front of uh, the patients at the right time? And I think that that's an important thing here because prior to everything going digital, which this pandemic, if it's done one thing, it's really digitized healthcare in a very rapid fashion with the yeah. advancements of telemedicine, et cetera. In many cases, 
part of that is is the provider themselves thinking, you know, the, the physician themselves thinking about how does video play within the overall care pathway. Tell us a little bit about your understanding and experience. Why is that such a challenge? You know, there's all these different vectors of ways that a provider or a practice can kind of communicate with patients. And some are some are synchronous, face-to-face, real-time, live on the phone or in an exam room. Those tend to be very high-touch, low scalability, right? One provider, one patient. And then you have highly, highly scalable ways of communicating, a, a, a printout a handout or a brochure, but you have a very low level of personal access. You know, this is, this is personal information for me from, from my own care team and so forth. And then you have this kind of wide swath in the middle that where it really, really gets challenging. So you've got, you know, social media, you've got text messaging programs, email programs, you've got your website. And so I think it's in the middle where the system is sort of trying to figure out how to, how to continue to deliver highly relevant, personalized information to patients and yet still do it in a scalable way. What our focus has tried to have been is on what are those vectors that they're currently using? What, for instance, one of the most underutilized, in, in our opinion, one of the most underutilized pieces of real estate in a health system, or not just a health system, but a practice of any kind, is the About Me page on the website, the about the provider, about the doctor. So a lot of times you go to those pages and they may have <clears throat> some text. Maybe they've got a picture. Sometimes they don't. Every once in a while, there might be a little 30-second video that that was filmed, which is great. Um, maybe they don't. Probably uh, more often than not, they don't. But that page to, to, to us just seems like a really logical place to turn into an engine for patient engagement because every patient can get there. They don't need to log in. There's no sort of HIPAA privacy related issues like there is in a patient portal. And there's all these things. So it's very accessible. So we've really focused on that as being kind of a primary vector. We have a, in the case of our, our platform, we have a kind of a library of embeddable products that can take the videos that you've created in Bidscript and embed them on those pages in a number of different ways. And the other thing about that too is that I think if we have to rely on the individual clinician to actively trigger an engagement each and every time, we're really kind of sunk. What we want from the provider is the expertise, but we don't really want to rely on the provider to be the delivery mechanism. So automated text messaging programs that trigger off of events in the EMR, um, the website, um, ways that we can that we can take the provider out of the equation for actually having to trigger that engagement uh, tend to be much more successful. They require a bit of integration, of course. Once you get that up and running, <clears throat> you just see unbelievable metrics in terms of how patients will engage with content when it's on their provider's website or when they get it delivered to them in a text message. Do you find that many of the physicians think about th- this content as being protected, like very unique to, is that one of the misconceptions they may have, you know, unique to the, the care, the specific care of that individual patient? You're creating good authoritative content that are not necessarily specific or, or HIPAA or PCI compliant. That's exactly right. You know, it's 90% of the information you need relevant to your knee replacement surgery is the same information that other patients need relevant to their knee replacement surgery. There's a very small percentage that's that's literally very specific to you. We go for that 90%, right? And so if you if you go to Vidscript and you look at 25 different orthopedic surgeons who have answered the 130 questions in our total knee replacement program, by the time you've gone through four or five of them, you can you can pair it with the next 24 are going to say. They're saying basically the same thing. The key is not that the content's different on a patient by patient. That's not necessarily what makes it personal. What makes it personal is that it's my own doctor. It means more to me that my surgeon or my mom's surgeon, that I hear that message from from that person than it does to hear it from an actor who's saying the exact same words or reading it or hearing from a different doctor. And, And so when we say personal, it's not that the content is specific to you, Mrs. Smith, but it's highly relevant to you because this is Dr. Jones, your doctor, your mom's doctor, and there's meaning in, in getting that message directly from them. And they all have their different ways, their different word pictures that they use, their, their different expressions, the way they communicate. And in many cases, those are cultural and regional and things like that. You know, a, an orthopedic surgeon in Augusta, Georgia is probably going to have a different way of talking to their patients than 
North Peak sur- sur- Surgeon at, at HSS in New York City, right? And those are really meaningful to patients. And those, those are very personal things. So, so, so yeah, so we're trafficking in that general information that everybody needs to know, but we make it personal because it's, it's their own doctor. And that's why we get really, really high engagement in this content because, because nobody feels like they're getting too much time with their doctor, right? This is very personal stuff for patients. Um, so they can get it from that trusted voice. Now that we're in a world where suddenly we're faced with having to do remote care and and starting to provide remote information, it becomes ever present. So let's pivot now to talk a little bit about what some of the stuff that you've done you know, since we've been faced with this coronavirus pandemic here in, in the United States. How are you working with organizations now to kind of help them utilize these tools to get to patients? The way I would characterize what what we see, and I think a lot of not just us, but a lot of people are seeing, is that there's an incredible there's an incredibly high demand right now for information, not just specific to COVID nineteen, but also specific to how that relates to me as a patient with heart failure, as a patient with lung cancer, as you know, et cetera. Uh, surgeries are getting canceled, uh, appointments are getting canceled, and so forth. So there's this high demand for information. But at the same time, uh, there's a very low capacity to be able to satisfy those needs because in many cases, uh, uh, staff has been furloughed and laid off from practices. And so there's this really uh, difficult situation, a very high demand, very low capacity. And so we're seeing this very rapid shift towards, in particular, I think, asynchronous um, methods of engagement. You know, it's one thing to be able to do a video consultation with a patient. That's great. It's even better from an efficiency standpoint if you can do multiple consultations asynchronously with patients kind of all at the same time. It's the same thing with us at Vidscript. It's it's one thing to be able to staff a, a call center or have somebody waiting. But if you can if you can deliver sort of recorded content a single time that relates to answering all these questions and then deliver it over and over and over again, asynchronously through a website or through a messaging program, all the better. So what's happening in the, in the immediate run for us right now is the biggest thing we're doing is we've partnered with AstraZeneca, a big pharmaceutical company, and they have funded a national rollout for a COVID-19 specific Vidscript program. And any healthcare provider can go to vidscript.com slash COVID-19 and they can individually register to um, use Vidscript to answer a whole slew of questions about a lot of different topics, and all of the topics are taken from uh, CDC and WHO uh, websites, Q&As. So if they're unclear about how to answer particular questions, they can click on a link and they can see what the WHO or CDC are saying about that, and they can can use that to to sort of modulate their, their answers. And then we're also, with the same program, engaging with health systems and group large practices and, and, and practices to onboard lots of their providers into that exact same program. And this is completely free to use. and allows providers to answer a whole bunch of questions, um, instantly stream that on their website, and then revert, refer patients to those pages to try to reduce the demand for staff time, which is, you know, staff time is tough to come by these days. Like everything else is moving so quickly, this 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 partnership, this collaboration came together in just a matter of a couple of weeks, something that would have taken, you know, months and months to get done in the normal timeframes. For our existing users, whether they're surgeons or internists or oncologists or whatever, we're, we're giving them um, templates that they can use. Um, templates are just sets of questions to help uh, educate their patients. Um, many of them already have you know, things set up on their web, our embeds on their website. So those instantly start streaming. What we see is there's going to be this rebound effect when these practices are looking to kind of get back to normal, whether they're, you know, elective surgeries are coming back online, appointments are coming back online and so on. We think there's a, an imminent glut of a hyper demand for information around that process by patients, you know, when is my surgery going to get scheduled? What what number am I in line to have my knee done and all these different things. And we see a real big need coming down the road in terms of practices kind of getting back up and running, bringing their employees back in and so forth. And patients saying, oh, we're back online. Okay, I'm going to call in and schedule my my procedure may not be quite that simple. A big important part of this is, is that, you know, you're giving, you're allowing that the person, the individual 
that the patient has the most trust in in the health system, which we we know is is their care provider, to let them actually kind of guide and give that trusted information. It's a, it's a I think it's a an important thing because if anything, over these last couple of weeks, as we're kind of walking through the early stages and now into the medium stages of this pandemic, there's been sort of an absence or an unclarity as to where that right authoritative information is. But you know, I'm thinking about like as in the future state, right after we we kind of try to come back to whatever the new normal will be things will have changed by then because we've been we've been rapidly deploying all these different remote ways that people can engage with the health system do you think that the use of video as part of you know the communications from the from the provider to the to the individual patient that's going to be now an expectation in the future wouldn't you agree? I think so. Dr. Fauci, who's become everybody's favorite infectious disease doctor, you know, he just said something today or yesterday that really was profound, that he doesn't think that we should ever go back to shaking hands, for instance. That's a massive cultural change, right? Handshaking. But like, it makes you kind of think what else is going to sort of permanently change. I think education, the way, the way we educate students clearly is going to change. Uh, the way restaurants work, health club works, et cetera. And of course, the way healthcare providers and their patients engage with each other is going to change. And it's going to affect everything from technology to even just think about real estate. If we're doing 70% of the basic consultations between healthcare providers and their patients virtually, we don't need the physical infrastructure that we have in terms of clinics and exam rooms and so forth. So it's going to have a uh, it's got a huge impact, and I don't think we're going back to the old way. Uh, this transition has happened so quickly. As long as the regulation and the payments systems can uh, can make the transition, it's hard to imagine it's going to it's going to go back. And I, I really think there's three primary sort of technology enabled changes that are going to that are going to happen. One is telehealth, of course, right? We're not going backwards in terms of telehealth. And I think in particular asynchronous telehealth is going to play a massive role not just in uh, uh, low acuity care but also post surgical and and all these things. Um, I think messaging programs, patient family communications, text messaging, um, those types of platforms that are there and and in my opinion deeply underutilized right now, those are going to come to the front. And then, and then the third one is really education. How are we going to get you to be comfortable that you understand what the expert um, thinks and is saying about any, whatever the topic might be? And that's where things like, there's other things as well, but things like capturing that information by video and making it highly accessible. So, you know, so if we have education and messaging and telehealth, those three things really are if I was an investor, those would be areas that I'd really be looking at because they're uh, bound to really fundamentally change going forward. There's not not a lot of good things that we could say about the current public health crisis that we're facing, but some of the things that really has, has hastened and moved forward, some of these things that we've been talking about for years that have happened in spurts and in within the health systems, right? And now suddenly we are now fully embracing digital channels as a way to connect further with our patients, that's transformative. Um, and it's transformative for all of our population. And when we're back to whatever that new normal is, then suddenly these tools are there. They're ever present. Well, John, this has been a really interesting conversation. You know, people listening in, they may want to know a little bit more about you. What's a good way for them to find you online? Me personally, I tweet as myself, as they say, um, but I'm on Twitter at ClearJB, ClearJB. Vidscript.com, V-I-D-S-C-R-I-P.com is our website. Uh, and then the program that I talked about earlier specifically for COVID is Vidscript.com slash COVID-19. If uh, somebody wanted to reach out to me directly, for instance, to talk about uh, maybe a health system or, or whatever that wanted to participate in that program, you can reach me by email at jbrownlee, with two E's, at vidscript.com. Well, John, thank you again for not only uh, you know, sharing your time today, but also the time from before. It's really fascinating to see. I'm kind of hopeful about the changes that are occurring and having companies like you with technology that can help support this. It's, it's really helpful. So thank you again. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. You be safe.
All right, special thanks to John Brownlee of VidScript for uh, coming on the show today. Certainly appreciate his time. A couple of interesting uh, comments, announcements, whatever you want to call them. Chris, you've got a new show coming out called The New Normal. Yeah, it's a limited series, about 10 episodes. Where we're going to be talking about all the different impacts of how the post-pandemic world is going to potentially be impacting healthcare. So from health policy to actually the way we deliver care, also the impacts to marketing and communications and some really interesting thought-provoking conversations about what the new normal potentially will be. So if you want to jump out to touchpoint.health and find out about the show, you can uh, subscribe. There's a little trailer out there and you can learn a little bit more about it. And the show will start soon. Excited about that. Please go out there, hit the site touchpoint.health. You'll see at the new normal, click through to whatever listening platform you prefer and go ahead and subscribe. That way you'll be notified as new episodes become available. Also, the virtual conference, the ShushMed uh, Society for Healthcare Strategy and Market Development Conference that's a virtual conference in conjunction with Mayo Clinic is now free. That's a, a virtual conference on June 2nd and 3rd. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's titled Advanced Healthcare, Social Media, and Digital Marketing. And there's going to be a number of great speakers talking about a variety of different topics around digital, around how uh, social media has changed and evolved and and how it all works together. And it's virtual, so you don't have to travel for it. You could do it in the comfort of your own home office. That's right. Maybe even uh, you could promote it internally to some other colleagues, uh, although you're not together either. Uh, you could still do it as a team potentially, so be sure to check that out. Uh, a couple of recommendations before we get out of here. I'll go first. Uh, I think I recommended HelloFresh maybe a couple of weeks ago, it seems like. Yeah, you did. Something kind of interesting they're doing. Got an email. And so anybody that, that uses HelloFresh, I would recommend this. And I'm sure there's some other ways to do this as well. But as we know, there's a lot of families out there that uh, are struggling to put food on the table. There's a lot of kids because they're not in school or not getting meals because that's the only meals they get is from their school. HelloFresh has set up a way that when you go in to pick your meals for the week, uh, you can actually donate your box. For that week. So something interesting to do, something that if it makes sense for you would be an easy way um, and wouldn't require a lot of effort for you to help pitch in and uh, help some folks that could uh, certainly use it. So that's my recommendation for this week is if you're a HelloFresh user to uh, donate your box. Awesome. It's funny, Reed, that you and I were thinking in the same way because I am actually going to recommend a nonprofit that you can actually uh, donate to, Second Harvest Heartland, or an international nonprofit that actually allows people to donate from all over the country through a single portal, but it, it actually routes your donation to the local food banks in your community. The website is toharvest.org. Just go to their website. There's also a lot of opportunities to volunteer if you're in so inspired. If you have uh, some extra money and you want to help out, I know the food banks around the country are really hurting right now. Go out to Second Harvest and make your donation and it will route to your local food banks. There you go. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, another good episode. Um, appreciate everybody hanging in this week. I hope everybody's doing well, staying safe, and uh, not getting too terribly stir crazy. If you're aware the uh, weather's nice, be sure to get out and walk around the block six feet away from everybody else. But get out and move around a little bit. Uh, don't just sit in front of the computer all day long. So I know that's uh, easier said than done sometimes. Uh, but you know what? Grab your phone, put on uh, an episode of Touchpoint, and go walk around the block. So we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks again to the sponsors. And for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.